Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Now, there's a counter to that, too. Don't think of yourself more lowly than you ought. Think soberly, righteously. Understand who you are. Hi guys. What's up guys? Welcome to the supersetyourlife.com podcast, your weekly dose of inspiration, entertainment, and education to fuel your life inside and beyond the gym. What's going on podcast? We have a very special guest on this episode. This is Pastor David Robinson on identity. This one is going to be on men. So this is a two-part series. This is episode 65 and then 66 is going to be part two. We'll release this one in a, that one in a couple days. Um, when we get into bodybuilding, it's obviously very much focused on aesthetics, right? Um, we teach four different pillars of hypertrophy of bodybuilding, which is aesthetics, strength, health, and purpose, okay? So our, our take on the sport of bodybuilding, what it means to us is that it should start with health and it should always be health first yeah. and it should make your life better. It shouldn't take over your life and it should be something that supersets your life. Yeah. All right. Um, so here's what attracted me to Taylor when she and I first met, just to give some context before we get into the meat and the purpose of what this episode is. Um, but what attracted me to Taylor when we first met is how much she valued herself, how much she put time into herself. She was exercising regularly. Uh, this is in college, Eastern Washington University, about 10 years ago. We're old. Wow. <laughs> I know. We're, we're like almost 30. I'm like, how did this happen? Yeah. Um, but she'd been playing hockey for 15 years when I met her. And uh, I guess you could almost say she was kind of like an enforcer on her team. I was, the, I was, I was an enforcer, a stay-at-home defenseman when I was playing hockey. And um, both, both of us met. We had so much in common. It was funny. We are, were both left-handed um, on the ice, both number four. Both stay at home. Number defensive. 15. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, both number 15. I mm -hmm. changed my number to number four yeah. because 15 was taken when I got into college. Um, but yeah, just. Both played saxophone. Both played saxophone. Same views on everything. You know, not, not to go off on that tangent too much, but, uh, but, but the point is, and how this relates to this episode and what we're going to be getting into is uh, the person that I was attracted to was not how she looked, even though she's beautiful. And yes, obviously that caught my attention. <laughs> uh, but what what attracted me to her is is who she has, is as a person. She's a very, very animated lady. And just talking and having a conversation with her is one of the biggest blessings that I get to have every single day. And anybody that knows her knows exactly what I'm talking about. Because when you talk to her, she has this deep, em nurturing empathy that is what makes her so beautiful. Why is she like that? She puts time into herself, she exercises, blah, blah, blah. she's healthy, and she, she values herself. Um, but she also has a very devotional prayer, prayer life and Bible reading habit. This is something that I noticed about her when um, the first time that I came over and was hanging out in your dorm room for the first time. I was like, wow, there's Bible sticky notes like everywhere. <laughs> um, this, is, this is really cool, actually. You know, you're going through a little bit of a, a dark time in your life. There's just some, some other things in your life that were happening that were pretty tough. And so... Yeah. Um, you know, I know that you found that very therapeutic and Oh yeah. Um anyway, that was that was something that just right off the bat made me go, Okay, this is a really cool lady. You know, there's something a lot more deeper than just her and herself. She's rooted in a faith and a, and, and, and a spirit that 
um, that I was just head over heels attracted for when we met. So um, she's- Well, and that's what we were both looking for mm -hmm. when we met. Like we were in the headspace of, we want to find somebody that has the same values as us. So yeah. of course it was attractive to us, to each other. Because that's what attracted me to you also. Thanks babe. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, she's the she's the easiest to be around when she's doing all these things. <laughs> and, and so am I. Yeah, um, but are for sure. yeah, you know, and, and like with with kids or like business life or circumstances or whatever, you know, like when when, when things happen that get us off track with our Bible reading, um, with not being able to work out, um, when when we fall off the wagon with our meal plans or when we aren't getting to church as much as we as as we really want to be, and we're not able to worship as much, like these things make us more frustrated, more stressed, and so that. Um, we, we, we found we found these habits and these foundation to, to be foundational as to who we are and, um, and and how we live every day and how and how we keep getting better every day. So for those reasons, we, we wanted to share um, one perspective on who you are as a man and who you are as a woman, um, thinking that that would counterbalance the um, amount of bodybuilders, um, athletic episodes and uh, motivational episodes and, and everything else that uh, can really get carried away from what the point really is. If you're building your body, if you're focused on your own goals and your own dreams, but you're not rooted in who you are as a person, then I think that's pretty self-defeating. And I think that's pretty pointless and pretty vain at that point. Now, just hear me out. I'm going somewhere with this. Um, but bodybuilding as we all know can become very very unhealthy it can be idolatrous it can be vanity it can become narcissistic it can become uh, it can become ocd and these are all common in any sport by the way um but that's what so that's why our podcast we've really tried to been tried, tried to focus on all these last 60 plus episodes to have um to have a variety of bodybuilders nutritionists comedians uh, solo episodes much more than just muscle <laughs> even though muscle happens to be a sport it's an art and it's it's, it's what we know and it's what we teach so as, as much as we focus on pictures on tran on transformations body fat percentages aesthetic goals posing meal plans we, we felt that it would be irresponsible to overlook the most important component to your health which is who who, who you are mm -hmm. you listening to this podcast um, without a solid understanding of who you are, building your body is just going to be a waste of time because building your body, the bodies that we have right now, this marriage that we have, um, it, everything physical that we have in life right now is temporary yeah. and we're only going to have it for so long. I'm not talking about self-love. I'm talking about something much, much deeper than that. So the, the last 10 years that you and I have been together, Taylor, we've, we've read over 100 self-help books, positive mental attitude, relationship books, marriage books, leadership books, success books, and uh, most of them have been pretty helpful. There are a couple downsides with all these books though that we've found. They all have opinions, they all have their own mistakes, um, and, and books get outdated over time. Well, they're written by humans, and so it's like, they're, they're never gonna be 100% the truth. Mm -hmm. so. except, for, except for one book. Because yeah. <laughs> what we've noticed is that there's one book that is timeless, that's perfect, and every page has something to help you with what you're experiencing today. It's a living, breathing document unlike anything else that's ever been written. And I don't have to say what it is because you already know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Um, our goal is not to force our beliefs on anyone. Our goal is not to judge anyone with different beliefs. Our goal is to 
authentically share our source of peace and fulfillment. That's why we're even talking about this and to invite you to listen to our pastor, David Robinson, to share some messages on what God has taught us about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Because that's 10 times more important than anything we've talked about on our previous episodes. Yeah. Bottom line. Um, you don't have to agree with us, but I do invite you to listen with an open mind, regardless of your beliefs. I pray that you'll benefit from our pastor's message. If I think back to the beginning of the pandemic and everybody was just freaked out and like worried. I mean, rightfully so. We had no idea what we were going, like what was going on and what this thing was. And I think for me, I'd never struggled with anxiety in my life until that started. And so the best thing I did for myself was just dive deep into worship music and into my faith and strengthening my relationship with the Lord. And, um, you know, it saved both of us from a downward spiral. I think both of us, like our relationship with the Lord, like has has never been better than it is now but the last year prepared like propelled us into this awesome just deep dive into the bible um and like colt said we've read a lot of self-help books over the last 10 years but nothing will touch what we've read in the bible the bible makes us better people it makes us better husband and wife better mother and father so we're drastically different when we don't have that um routine in our life of getting our time to study the bible and and getting those core things done every day so we make sure that we're on track with our emotions and um, our spiritual life and the bible is really the only moral basis for being a better parent for being a better husband for being a better wife you know because Mm -hmm. it's like okay well what's what's being a good person in one person's eyes is different than being a good person in say hitler's eyes right Right. (laughs) so so if we're just going off of everybody's opinions then that nothing's consistent there so having something that is that serves as a moral foundation and a moral basis that that has no contradictions within itself and that never changes over time um, i i guess i don't understand where uh where being a good person how, how you can define really what that is without without something like this so um okay maybe you as a listener are wondering some of the things that we used to wonder too which is can, uh, can, can we trust the bible Um, There's so many different views on how to interpret the Bible. So who's right? Who's wrong? Isn't the Bible outdated? Is it, it's just like a really old book, right? Uh, Doesn't it contradict science? Um, Isn't it the same thing as all other religions, just like written down in a different way? (laughs) The obvious answer to that is no, it is not. Um, Is there any real evidence for history, claims, and prophecies being factual? Um, so the answers to all these can be found within these 66 books that, um, can, that, that only could, could have been written by a supreme being outside of the restriction of the time, time domain. They can't be found overnight. They can't be found, but, but they can be found with a daily discipline, study, an open mind, and a heart to know the truth. Um, you don't need to be a Bible st- scholar. You don't need to be a historian to understand this book. You just need to have a sincere desire to learn and you'll know the truth. Proverbs 25 two says it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of Kings to search it out. A lot of people complain. They're like, Oh, it's, it's, it's hard to understand. It's, it's supposed to be hard to understand. It's a mystery. The whole Bible can really be summed up in John three sixteen, which is for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That basically sums up the entire Bible. But understanding everything else gives so much more depth to it and so much more meaning to it. 
Um, and every any time you go looking for an answer to a question, you get two, you you get ten new questions out of it. And that's I think part of what makes it so beautiful. It's the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings to search it out. Proverbs twenty five two, written by King Solomon. Um, God always rewards the diligent student. That's by Chuck Missler, one of my favorite theologians. Um, and then 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God or woman may be competent, equipped for every good work. Mm. All right. Um, so the answers to your questions are there. All 66 books, they're integrated together one divine author and one single unified message. If these concepts are new to you, that's okay. There's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to be skeptical about. God created you and he loves you and he desires for you to come to him. And that's pretty much all summarized in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6, okay? So if, if you're gonna start, you know, if, 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 you're, if you're just like, hey, like I've, I've always wanted to read this book, but I don't understand it, you know, where do I start? We would suggest starting with one of the gospels. We're just feeding- we're Matthew, just, Mark, Luke, John. Mm -hmm. We're just finishing up Luke right now. And uh, I think that that's probably your favorite of all of them. Right? I really like Luke. Really yeah, enjoying it. I yeah. do. Why, why, yeah. why do you like Luke? Well, the way he paints the picture, well, and I have to say too, listening to David Guzik's um, exposition. The enduring word commentary. Yeah, that, yeah. that really helps. Yeah, that commentary has been growing in a lot of popularity for a good reason too. Yeah. It's so good, so basic, and it just yeah. really brings it to life. So here's a tip for those of you who are maybe neutering the Bible and like you're kind of where I was at, where I got, I would read and I would forget what I read. And so I just kind of felt like I was having to read the same things over and over again or it didn't make sense. And so what I do is I read about 40 verses a day because that's kind of all I can handle and like absorb. And then what I'll do is I'll go find a commentary on it that of someone that we trust. So like a David Guzik or a Skip Heidzik or who else you listen to? Chuck Missler. Chuck Missler, yeah. yeah. And then I'll read or I'll listen to their exposition on it uh, of what I read and it really helps me understand it. So yeah. that's helped me a lot. I'm a visual learner, but I also hear, I also understand really well when I'm listening, so. Yeah, great. Thank you for that. If if you want something straight to the point and fast, uh, read the Book of Mark. All right, it's he he was he was the pen penman for the Apostle Peter actually. So Peter is the one that dictated the book, and Mark was the one that wrote it down. Um, it's the shortest of the Gospels. It focuses on Jesus's works, and Peter and Mark present Jesus as a servant. Mm -hmm. um, if you want something that's relatable and everyday practicality, Luke would be a good one for that. Um, he's the only non-Jewish author of the Gospels. He's a Gentile like you and me, unless you happen to be a Jew listening to this. <laughs> um, so he's uh, typically a little more relatable. Most people tend to understand his, his Gospel the best. Um, he was a physician, so he focuses on Jesus's humanity. It's chronological, it's detailed, it's well attested by Christian and non-Christian historians um, like Josephus, who's one of the most famous historians ever to, ever, ever to live. Um, if you want the most detailed one, uh, my personal favorite is Matthew and he was a tax collector. This focuses on Jesus's royalty. He presents Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's lots of prophecy in this one. This is, like I said, the most detailed. Um, it has the all of it discourse in it, which goes through the great tribulation. <laughs> one of the next, probably the, the next, if not one of the next um, upcoming prophetic events on our calendar. And then if you want the most powerful of all the gospels, um, John is a, is a really good one. I would say most people would say that John is 
the most powerful of all most of them. Most people, I think, prefer John of the Gospels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it focuses on his deity. It's probably, it's like the deepest of all of them. And it's the same author that wrote the book of Revelation too. So if, if you, if you have, but if, if you do have a good handle on all these gospels too, and, and you're just somebody that like wants some evidence, like how do I know if this book is true? Um, I would suggest looking into prophecy. Um, and there's no better place to start in my opinion than the book of Daniel for prophecy. Book of Daniel is awesome. So we're going through one of the gospels together and we should study this and do a verse by verse on Daniel together too. Yeah. Um, it's fun for so many different reasons. Um, if it, it, oh yeah one more thing uh, a, a good bible to start with too if you don't have one is the esv inductive study bible i'm going to put a link to that in the description and um, a good verse by verse commentary and so i would suggest anything that you're listening that that you're reading listening to the enduring word commentary you can get that on itunes you can get that on youtube podcast um, right? yeah podcast app um, i would look for that and i'm going to put a link to that in the description as well okay so on the subject of prophecy, um, we could do like an entire podcast series on apologetics and all the reasons why the why why the Bible is the most well-attested ancient document in the history of the world and why it's so reliable, um, and why it's and why it's never wrong. But um, it, it, for for the sake of not trying to get too far off track, that more so than we already are, <laughs> and get to the real purpose of of, of this particular episode, which is going to be men and what it means to to be a man. Um, I did want to cover one piece of apologetics that I, that I thought was pretty exciting. And uh, okay, so first first of all, what does apologetics mean? Uh, the dictionary defines it as reasoned arguments or writings in justification of something, typically a theory or a religious doctrine. So we don't advocate religion because Jesus was the most anti-religious person ever to walk the earth. He basically took religion and threw it in their faces. Um, and he, he fulfilled that. So we, we, we advocate love, we advocate truth. That's what the Bible teaches. And, uh, and, and then the word prophecy, last second vocab word is, it, it simply just means a prediction of a future event. And it, it, that's amazing. It's really important because this book is filled with hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of prophecies, depending on what you count as a prophecy, um, but of things that are very, very detailed and predicted to happen, and then they happen exactly like it says that they were going to happen. Um, a, a human being can't write a book like that because the odds of that happening would be would, would, would be would be a million to one. There's just, there's, there's, just, there's just no way. It had to have been written by somebody who was outside of time that knew or that, um, or, or that created, that, 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 that created time to happen the way that it did. So, the book of Daniel, the reason why it's such a good place to start is because it's fun, it's entertaining, it's exciting. Um, there's familiar stories, like things that you'll recognize from Sunday school or from kids' books if you went to Sunday school. Um, it's a foundation to be able to understand other prophetic books, in particular Revelation, uh, Matthew chapter 24, and other minor prophets like Zechariah, Joel, etc., etc. Um, it is packed with detailed prophecies that are written hundreds of years before they happened. Um, okay, so the, the biggest thing that makes this book controversial is the authorship. People people look at it and they go, okay, it literally talks, and we're not going to go into all these. We could maybe do these on a different podcast, but um, there's just one prophecy that I wanted to um, pick apart here and use it because I think it's the most, um, I, 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 think, I think it's the most inc incredible, one of the most incredible prophecies in the Bible. 
Um, but what happens throughout the entire book is that there's these very vivid battle scenes and very vivid um, war stories that are predictions. And hundreds of years later, they, they happen just like they said they were gonna happen. So because it is so spot on and so accurate, all the historians that are that that are secular and and that um, and 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 that and that don't believe it to be true, they think that it was written by somebody else falsely in Daniel's name as history and not really prophecy, and that it was written a couple hundred years later. So uh, there's so many reasons why there's no way that it could have been written after the after the fact. I'm not going to go into all of them, but I'm just going to put I'm just going to throw out the most con convincing one for me which is uh, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. This essentially is, wh what this is, is, is a prophecy of, th this, this is the skeleton to be able to um, fit pretty much all the rest of the prophecies throughout the Bible into these couple verses here. This is the word of God through the angel Gabriel to Daniel concerning his people. So he's talking about the Jews, okay? Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand from the going out of the word to restore and, and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, Jesus, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, the anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with a man for one week and 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 he shall make a strong excuse me and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for the half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator did you understand all that yeah <laughs> yeah that was my reaction to the first time that i read it i was like what the heck and so it took uh it, honestly, it took months, and it and it took a, a lot of a lot of deep studying and and and, um, and 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 checking out people's commentaries and different views on it, and um, and looking at the rest of the Bible and seeing how it connected with everything else, and, um, and 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 a lot of prayer and a lot of reflection and thinking, you know, what 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 is this saying? So, after um, after doing a lot of my own research to really get to, to really come to the bottom of this, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna explain. The first couple of verses here so 70 weeks now the the word week is a is a hebrew word that's translated it just means seven of something so it's like our word for dozen mm. it's like the english word for dozen right dozen means 12 it could mean 12 of anything so the word seven just means seven of something and i'm going to put links to my sources here too by the way so that um so you can so you can fact check me right um, so we know that the angel Gabriel was referring to years. So when it says 70 weeks, it really, it, what that means is, 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 is 70 years. There's just no real way to translate it other, other than weeks. And so that's just, that, that, that's just what they say is, uh, basically it just means 77s are decreed about your people and the holy city, which is Jerusalem to finish transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity and to, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal in both vision and profit and to anoint the most holy place. Okay, the next important part. 
Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Okay, so seven times seven is 49. That's 49 years. Um, then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. Okay, so this time that he's referring to is the decree to build the city of Jerusalem. And this can be found throughout the book of Nehemiah. Um, a, a prophetic year was 360 days, according to, to Sir Isaac Newton. So this is when people are like, oh, well, I don't know if I believe this stuff. I'm like, okay, well, if you don't believe it, you're disagreeing with Sir Isaac Newton and um, lots, lots of other scientists, um, people that are a lot smarter than me. So, um, okay, that's, that's what a pr prophetic year is. 360 days. Uh, I'm going to read from Sir Anderson's book, page 61, The Coming Prince. This is a this is a phenomenal book. This is this is a this is a, a th this is probably the best summarized documentation of the math that goes into this prophecy when the prophecy was given and what the start date was, what what the end date was, and why this is so incredible. What happens? Okay, so. Uh, page 61. If tradition may be trusted, Abraham preserved in his family the year of 360 days, which he had known in, in his Chaldean home, Babylonian home. The, the month dates of the, of the flood, 150 days being specified as the interval between the, seven, the 17th day of the second month and the same day of the seventh month. A, a, these appear to show that the form of the year was the earliest known to our race. Sir Isaac Newton states that all nations... Before the just before the just length of the solar year was known, reckoned months by the course of the moon and years by the return of winter and summer, spring and autumn, and in making calendars for their festivals, they reckoned thirty days to a lunar month, and twelve lunar months to a year, taking the nearest round numbers. Whence came the division of the the, the ecliptic into three hundred and sixty degrees, and in adopting the statement, sir. G.C. Lewis avers that all credible testimony and all anecdotal probability lead to the result that a solar year con con contains, contains 12 lunar months determining within certain amounts of the air has not been has has been generally recognized by nations adjoining the Mediterranean from a remote an antiquity. <laughs> okay. That was, that was a lot. I know that was a mouthful. So basically what we get out of that, and again, I'm going to cite these sources here too, where these gentlemen where, where these gentlemen said this, is that a prophetic year is 360 days and a, um, a, a prophetic year is 360 days and a week is seven years. So when you do, why is this important? When you do the math, uh, oh, and one more thing, Daniel was already thinking in terms of weeks uh, in being in terms of years because when, when the angel Gabriel said 77s, he was already thinking in terms of years because he was studying Jeremiah's prophecy where he was basically being told the same thing and it was act and, and, and Jeremiah's prophecy actually reveals why it is exactly 70 years. That's an entirely different conversation, but like uh, everything in here is very, very intentional. 69 weeks times 70 years times 360 days is 173,000 880 days okay so the start date for that was that that we that we that we just came up with was 445 bc 
That was the decree by Artaxerxes to rebuild uh, the city of Jerusalem. And that was on on day one of the month Nisan, which is not, not Nisan the car, but Nisan. Uh, this was this was from the Jewish calendar in the year 445 BC, and the end date was to the the 10th of Nisan, aka Sunday, April 6th. Ready, of AD 32. This is so the start date was exact was to rebuild Jerusalem, and the end date was Jesus's death. Therefore, Jesus's death was prophesied to the day over 500 years before the date. Okay. So when he says, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and then shall have nothing, that's what that prophecy was referring to. And that's what it came out to was the exact day of Jesus' death. Hope that was enter entertaining and I hope that was motivating. It gives you some hope to go, you know what? Okay, this is, this is the, the, the same being that wrote this, loves me, created me, and... And, and, ha and has my best interest in mind. So with that in mind, I'm going to give it over to our pastor, David Robinson. Um, he is a man that has completely changed our lives. Yeah. Um, this whole church has. We believe that God brought us to Vancouver, uh, yes, for business, but ultimately um, beca because of our church and because of the community that we have here. If you would like to attend church and you're in, 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 in the area, great. It's at Axe Church Northwest every Sunday at 10 o'clock a.m. Um, the, I'm going to put a link to the website in the show notes below. Um, and if you don't live in the area, then you can listen. It is at 10 o'clock a.m. live on YouTube every Sunday. PST. Pacific time. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, going to turn it over to Pastor David now. Okay. Thanks so much, everybody. Love you a lot. God bless. And here we go. According to Sartre, there is no design for a human being. No way we have to be. No God to create a purpose for us. No human nature that fixes how we should live. I woke up with a broken heart in my chest. I couldn't sleep, couldn't get no rest. Weighed down by the heaviness of life. I want to read you something that Nietzsche wrote. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. And I try to shake it flipping through my phone. But all it does is make me feel more alone How could anything that feels so wrong be right? But again, this shows that there's this sort of conflict The more you believe in Darwin, the less you believe in God Seven million voices separate us But only one can show us who we are You will know them by we their fruits are Look, we teach the truth, we don't apologize for it, we don't can, you can't code it, we don't hide it. Because we're people of truth. We're going to seek truth, we're going to live truth, we're going to know truth, we're going to know more and more truth. Listen, brothers and sisters, I love you. I love you. Not as loud as last time. Let's pray as we get started. Father, I just pray that you'd be with us. You are our king, Lord. 
we come in and we worship before you, Lord, and we go through, you know, the week, God, and you know how difficult it is in each person because you know each person so intimately what they dealt with this week, what they've dealt with this morning, what they're dealing with now. Lord, I pray that you would be with those who need your hand right now. All of us do, but we have those in the body who are sick, those in the body who are struggling, those who are dealing with issues related to uh, pregnancy, dealing with issues related to disease. Lord, those who can't be here today for different reasons, pray you be with them. But God, I pray you just settle our hearts to study your word and to see the importance of studying your word this morning, Lord, as we learn who we are in you. Jesus, we love you in your name. Amen. Come on, Jeff. Right here, buddy. I can't, I'll get all weird if I don't have it in the right spot for me. <clears throat> so my first days of, of law school, uh, I met a man who would become one of my closest friends. Uh, we would raise our families together, by and large, serve a church together. Uh, eventually, we'd become partners in a law firm in East Tennessee. Uh, he's from East Tennessee. He's a country boy out in East Tennessee. Uh, my wife and his wife became very good friends. She actually became very good friends with his cousin, too. Same person. <laughs> kidding. They were second cousins. It's not the same. No, they weren't. They weren't. They weren't. Oh, anyway, his name is Will. Actually, his name is Dennis Roach II, but his dad always called him Will because he liked Willie Mays. But when I first met him, he introduced himself as Dennis. Okay? He introduced himself as Dennis. So, obviously, I called him Dennis for the first couple of weeks that I know him, knew him until he decided he didn't want to go by Dennis anymore. He wanted to go back to going by Will. Uh, this is what he'd been going by his whole life. Uh, and so going by Dennis for a couple of weeks wasn't working, but it also wasn't a random event. There's a reason I'm telling you this story. He's like, what are you talking about? This guy's named Dennis. He's named Will. We don't care. Okay, listen. He was doing this thing at the time where he was trying out this new style. So it involved his name, and then it involved like he was trying to change the clothes that he wore. Like I think there was a cowboy hat and a belt buckle at one point involved, and like bolo tie. And you know, he's just trying to do this thing. He wants to change his image. He wants to change his image because he's, I guess, because he's in law school now, and he's going to become a liar, a lawyer, and he's going <laughs> to... That one's just so easy, right? Um, uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> he explained to me what he's going through, right? I'm trying to do this thing and like kind of, I want maybe have a new style, a new image and, and, and whatever. And I'm thinking the only image that you are creating with me is that you are a weirdo, right? <laughs> like that you're trying to like do this thing and create this image. And he is a weirdo, by the way. Will is a weirdo. Anybody, if you're watching from Tennessee this morning, you know what I'm talking about. And Will, if you're watching, you know what I'm talking about. Um, most lovable weirdo you'll ever meet, by the way. But he wanted to put out an image, an image to people. He wants to show something to the world about himself and something different than sort of the image he had always had. Now, the fact is, in Will's case, that image didn't fit, it didn't work, and in no time at all, he was back to being old Silly Willie, as we called him. And he has stayed Silly Willie, he's the judge now, he's still Silly Willie. Don't call him that in the courtroom, he wouldn't like that, but... Um, 
people often put an image of themselves out that's kind of made up, sort of engineered to sort of tell everyone a story about who they are, right? And the way that we like present ourselves, we put out this image. Often it's not completely true. It's not just in like the clothes we wear or the name we want people to call us. It's kind of this whole process, how we present ourselves, how we look, how we talk, what we say we value. And for many people, it's just really an attempt to put their best face forward, right? Their best face forward. Because people want to be liked. They want to be appreciated. They want to be valued. Who doesn't want to be liked, appreciated, and valued? If you don't want that, that's weird. Most of us do want that, right? We're actually made to want that. We're made to want relationship and good relationship. We want to impress people at some level with our abilities or our uniqueness. We want what people would call a good image. Now, in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, there's nothing wrong with wanting to have a good image. In fact, you should want to have a good image. You should want it to be true, but you should want to have a good image. You should care at some level how you are being perceived by others because sometimes that's the way we show love to other people and courtesy in the way that we present ourselves. For instance, if you don't take a shower for a long time, the way you present yourself isn't a courtesy to other people. Glenn. And so I no. <laughs> had to get him. Had to get him. Had to get him. You take baths. Okay. Well, that's a different issue we'll talk about. Um, I have, so I'm going to filter caught it. Filter caught it. I got a whole thing going on here. But uh, listen. <laughs> For other people, they don't necessarily struggle with this whole image thing. Some people have kind of given up on it. They've said, I just don't care about it. Um, they don't necessarily work on their image at all. They're kind of comfortable being in the, not being in that business, trying to sort of look good. Um, sometimes maybe they just don't think they're that valuable. And so they don't try to do an image at all. It's kind of this pendulum, right? It can go one way where you're like overly concerned with image, what I call shiny people. You know a shiny person because in some cases they're actually sort of shiny. Like they've, they, have, they have buffed and scrubbed and done every, and it's just like, woo, that person's shiny. Like their image has become so important to them that it's clear that hours and hours and hours probably of every day are spent on that, right? You probably think that about me. I, this actually is really easy. I do this quickly. <laughs> You're shiny. No, uh, yeah. You, no one thinks that. Um, there are people who do that, right? And there's other people who are like, they just don't value themselves at all. And so they almost think badly of themselves. And so they don't put an image on at all. It can swing both ways. But I have noticed that this affects both men and women. But there's a particular way that it affects men. We started this series called Identity last week. And, and the full title is Identity, Discovering Who and Why You Are. And this week we're studying men. Now, some of the things we talk about certainly will affect or apply to women as well, uh, but many of the things we discuss uh, are really aimed sort of at men and the particular way that men deal with this issue of image. Okay, there's a lot of things I would love to talk to men about, but I don't, that would be a really, really long sermon. So this one's just going to be a pretty long sermon, and it's going to focus on men and the way that they understand and deal with image. And if you're, a, if you're not a man, you're a woman or you're a young person that's not a man yet, um, this will maybe help you understand a little bit about 
the men in your life and maybe what some of the things they deal with. Lord willing, we're going to get your own study for women and our own study for children that have to do with your image and so on. This one's for men. Let's start with a great passage where the disciples are walking with Jesus. Okay, this is in Matthew. There's Bibles, by the way, in front of you if you want to read like a paper Bible. There's one in front of you. If you don't have one at home, you need one or you need a new one, you've just worn it out. Awesome. Take one of those. Um, more likely, you haven't worn it out and you don't know where it is. Take one of those. Those are, those are for you. So we're going to be in chapter 20 of Matthew. We're going to start in verse 28. I lied to you. We're going to start in verse 20. didn't lie to you. I made a mistake, okay? <laughs> Lawyer, liar, whatever. Here we go. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him. This came to Jesus, Okay. They're all walking along, okay? You've got you to put yourself in context. They're, they're hanging out. They're walking along. Jesus has got his disciples, but there's all these other people, men and women, followers of Christ who are around, right? This is kind of the nature of how it is a lot of times. And in this case, John and James, their mom, is hanging out. So she comes to Jesus, okay? Came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. Now, you got to put this in context, right? John and James, they want this. They want to be on the right and left. They can't ask for it because they're being wusses, right? So they got mommy to do it, right? <laughs> Mom, will you, will you go ask Jesus for this for us? He really likes you. Like, we're nervous. I mean, honestly, this is crazy. This is the kind of stuff that makes me feel good about my failings. Like, I'm, because I'm a disaster like this too, right? I'd be like, Mom, can you go do this for me? So that's what they're doing. So she comes. She's asking for the boys. Can you do this? But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. Tough talk because they got no idea. What's about to go down? So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and my left is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it is prepared by my father. Now listen, the rest of the disciples, they hear about this, okay? There's 10 other dudes, all of whom are kind of thinking, well, I kind of thought I was going to sit on the right hand or the left hand or whatever, right? They all have that. So it says this. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. You think? <laughs> little jealousy, little envy building up here. But Jesus called to them to himself. He's like, all right, everybody, class, sit down. We're going to talk about this. And said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, these are the unbelievers, okay? Gentiles is everyone but Jews. In this context, you're talking about every unbeliever, non-follower of Christ, non-follower of God, these are the Gentiles. You know, the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. And then here comes the punch to the gut, okay? It says this, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The disciples wanted greatness and glory, right? Like the Indiana Jones movie, fortune and glory, kid, fortune and glory. That's what they wanted, greatness and glory. They wanted authority and power. 
And they particularly wanted that. This is kind of the important part. This is why the other 10 weren't happy. They particularly wanted it in comparison to other people. They wanted that power. The idea is Jesus is ruler over all things. We want to sit at the right and the left because we want to be in charge of some folks. And in this case, if they're sitting the right and the left, that means the other 10 disciples got to sit somewhere else. So there's this idea that they want to be not just great, but greater than other people. This is the way of the Gentiles, of the unbelievers, Jesus tells them. Those who don't honor God. Now listen, this is extremely important for everybody, but men, listen to this very carefully. The world loves ladders. Ladders. Most of you have probably used a ladder. It has a top, and it's got a bottom, and there's a bunch of rungs in between, right? You step up on the ladder, and many people see the world and their place in it in terms of or as a ladder. In the secular world, people actually use the term working my way up the ladder, right? If you're at a job, you're in a corporation or whatever, you're working your way up the ladder. And what that means is you're achieving more power, more position, right? More authority, more responsibility. You're working your way up the ladder. Well, how does the ladder work? Who's on the ladder? Other people. When you work your way up the ladder, somebody's below you on the ladder. And that's how people see it. Even the word position, what's your position? What's your position at the company? Even the word position implies position in relation to somebody else. What's your position? My position is here. What's the other person's position? Somewhere in comparison to you, above or below. That's the way people think about the world. Thought of one person being higher, one person being lower. I believe that there are many men who have the world broken up into the following categories. People they speak up to, people they speak down to, and people they sort of speak evenly with. That's, that's literally how they see the world. I speak up to these people. These people are sort of above me in position, whatever. I speak down to these people. These are the people that I'm above. And then I have kind of my peers, the people that are sort of even with me. Many men, I believe, are like that. And the way that these men feel about themselves and their value can be totally wrapped up in their perception of how many people they get to speak down to. That's where their value comes from. That's what the world tells them. And so they sort of buy into it. But Jesus kind of comes in and just absolutely devastates this notion, this idea, this system, this ladder system of the world. The idea that we should seek authority and power. This is what we read. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, you want to be great? You want to have power and authority? Okay, here's how you do it. Opposite. Let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He just completely turns it around. The world's looking at things one way. Okay, this is what's important. I mean, the Roman world, you have to understand all about it, right? Power and authority. Greatness. There's people who would go around and they would have all these people that they were kind of the benefactor for that would sort of follow them around during the day. This is, this is one of those things that was going on in the ancient world. And how many people you sort of had in your entourage kind of showed how important you were, right? It was about power, authority, position. 
One of the main anxieties of men, as is true of women, as of children, and so on, but of men, is their worth. And in the case of men, they often measure their worth by their status. That is, where they are on the ladder. And Jesus says, the bottom of the ladder is the only place for a Christ follower to be. He says that we are to serve and love as he served and loved. That's, that's bigger than you think it is. That's a massive, massive hit to our worldly thoughts about how things work. Now, there are three distinct ways that I know that men struggle with this. Number one, I'm a man, and I've struggled with this. Number two, I have known a lot of other men and seen that they struggle with this. And number three, Scripture gives some very telling commands to men specifically about this. And so let's read just this verse that kind of applies to some other things. But if you take it and look at it and study it, you can see the application here. This is Ephesians 5.25. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, this is a man, this is a command to men specifically because husbands are men by definition. Okay, you can only be a husband if you're a man. Okay, My, some of you might be thinking, I'm not a husband, so it doesn't matter, it doesn't apply to me. Uh, it does matter, it does apply to you because this is a struggle that men have. That's why when you become a husband, you have to be told about it. See, the things in the Bible are there because it's the word of God and we need to learn it and know it and grow in it. When scripture gives a command, it's usually because we fail in those areas. Right? Jesus, for instance, doesn't have to tell us to love those who love us. What does he have to tell us? Because we already love those who love us. Luke 6, 32-36. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even the sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father is also is merciful. Scripture doesn't have to teach us the things that we already do. Hey, love the people who already love you. Like the people who already like you. That doesn't have to say that. Why? You're going to do that. What does it have to say? It has to teach us the things that are difficult. Things we don't want to do. The things that in worldliness we don't naturally do. Those are the things he has to teach us. So, James and John don't need a scripture verse telling them to ask for a position of honor. They already wanted to do that. They went and got mommy and they did it. Right? They needed Jesus Christ to tell them to be humble and to be a servant because that was not their natural inclination. Husbands don't need a verse to tell them to treat their wives selfishly. They've been doing that for a long time. They seem to be quite good at it. As a husband, I understand that very well. What they need is a verse to tell them to love their wives. We are being told in the scripture as men, as husbands, to be like Christ to the church. And that can only be done in humility and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is pure, loving service. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I mean, you're not normally, out of the normal way that the world works, going to give your life for your wife. 
as Christ gave his life for the church. You're not normally going to love your wife. Some people say, hang on a second. Wait a second. I would take a bullet for my wife. And I do love my wife. She's really nice to me. I want you to listen carefully. Taking a bullet for your wife and going to be with Jesus is way easier than taking out the trash with a smile on your face for 50 years of marriage. It is. It is. Yeah, you probably would. I'm guessing most of you would jump in front of that bullet, feel like that was the right thing to do in that moment. But loving service day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, serving this woman in love as Christ loved and served the church, that's hard. That's hard. Saying you love your wife when she's nice to you is not loving your wife in service. Loving your wife in service is loving your wife when she's not so nice. When she's wronging you. When she's doing things that really make you upset. Now, this has never happened in my marriage, but some of you I've counseled, and I know that that's the way it is, but that's what loving your wife looks like. It's easy to love those who love you. It's hard to love when it's hard to love. Christ and the church, Christ and the church. You've got to think about that. What has he done for the church? What has the church been like to Christ and what has Christ been like to the church? Well, the church has not always been nice. We've done all kinds of things that make us quite unlikable. I'm part of the church and I know that about myself, but Jesus Christ has loved us and loved us so much that even knowing our failures, he gave his life for us and rose again, defeating sin and death and hell. Now, why would he do that for us? Because he loved us. That's the kind of love. The kind of love that when you're not likable, you're still serving, humbling yourself. That's the call of a man. This is important, man. The call of a man is to love the hard way. That's to love the hard way. This is not a specific command given to women in the context of marriage because it's not as hard for them to love. They got a whole thing with respect. We're going to get into that later, okay? <laughs> Your time is coming. But loving is not the thing that, that the Lord was concentrating on with them. But for you, men, which means even if you're not married, you probably have this struggle. Loving and serving is the issue. You got to love the hard way. You got to love when it's hard to like. You got to serve when it's hard to serve. And if you're married, it begins with your wife. But if you're not married, you're just, you know, single or whatever, being a servant and a slave to everyone. So, so anti-world, so anti-culture, so anti-society, so hard to do. There's been a lot of ink spilled over some men who have been leaders in the church in the past several years. We've had a lot of stuff that's come out in the media. We've had a lot of stuff, a lot of people who have done a lot of talking about a, a small number of pastors who became known for a type of leadership that was abusive, that was overly authoritarian. And these men generally have been removed from leadership in most of these cases, but there was this kind of abusive and harsh and unloving. It wasn't necessarily that they were out, you know, in sexual sin or stealing money or doing things like that. They were just, they had these leadership styles that were super harsh. And it's been kind of this big topic. There's a big... Uh, podcast that's really famous right now that's really popular about one of these churches and how it went down. And what happened is these men came to believe that they needed to exercise authority over other people and that they had position 
position that they were above and therefore authority. And they thought this because they were men and they were pastors. And they thought they say what's up and everybody else does it. And there have been a whole lot of hurt people left in the wake of some of these leaders, so-called leaders, because that's not leadership at all. These men forgot what it really looks like to be a man. And interestingly, some of them really overly focused on manhood and masculinity and what it meant to be a man. And there's, those things can be important. But these guys in all that forgot what it meant to be a man of Christ. They forgot that leadership is about service and humility and grace and patience and loving like Jesus loved. And instead they got caught up in their own status and position and where they thought they were on the ladder. They started creating ladders in the church and being very clear about them being at the top of that ladder and everybody else being below them. And it caused a lot of damage. They crushed those who they saw as below them. Now, one of the things some of these guys did well was give young men encouragement, and young men do need encouragement and hope. Because this is a time when young men are struggling with who they are, as young women are. Frankly, as old men and old women are. This is a difficult time as we reach the end of the age. So it's a good thing. Young men, you should know you're important and you're valuable. I talked about it last week. Everything that we talked about from the scriptures last week is true about you. You're important, you're valuable, you're made in the image and likeness of God. You were knit together in your mother's womb for good works. All of that stuff is true. But you are not more important than the people sitting next to you. And you wreck the ship if you're the kind of leader that begins to lord authority like the unbelieving Gentiles and demean the value of others. And those others often were anyone that didn't agree with them and most women. That's who they demeaned. That's who they harmed. There are two things that you should know and feel and be told and study and live in as a man in this local expression of the body of Christ at Acts Church that we demand that you know from the scriptures because we're very clear about it. One, you are important. You are valuable. And there is a real and serious plan for your life that is of eternal importance and value. Number two, that first statement is true about every other man, woman, and child in the body of Christ. Not just you. Not just you. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Who's heirs according to the promise? Every Christ follower. You're all heirs according to the promise. All of us, men, women, and children who are Jesus Christ, are heirs according to the promise. There's no higher low. There is no ladder of value. It does not exist. We do have different callings. Different callings as individuals. Different callings as men and women. One of the callings for men that we're focusing on is to be humble servants of all. Humble servants of all. Romans 12, 3 through 5. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, 
as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Now there's a counter to that too. Don't think of yourself more lowly than you ought. Think soberly, righteously, understand who you are. We studied last week how valuable you are. That's all true. How much God thinks about you. He's thought more thoughts about you than all the people in this room have ever thought in their life about anything. He is super into you and his relationship with you. You are, you are very important. So important that he died for you and rose again and is willing to let you call him Lord. That's pretty amazing. How special we are that he thought about us before the world is made. How he knit us together in our mother's womb. That's all special. It's giving you valuable gifts, talents, and ability, and they're good gifts. But they do not make you higher than others. And the call, the call is not to separate yourself from your brothers and sisters on some kind of a ladder. The call is to lower yourself. If there's any kind of a ladder, it's the one that you're constantly going lower on, constantly finding new ways to serve, to humble yourself. fitting into his body, his church, to do the work of his kingdom as humble servants. Now, the world thinks being a man is all about physical and mental strength. I was reading a survey talking about how many guys are concerned about kind of faking that they have a lot of physical and mental strength because they believe that that's what other people think makes them masculine because the world is very worked up about those things. And there's nothing wrong with having physical and mental strength. But being tough and achieving status and power are not what the scripture is saying is what being a man is about. Jesus tells us that the real strength is in humility and service. James 4.10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You don't lift yourself up. He lifts you up. If you try to lift yourself up, he resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. And yet the world's going to tell you to lift yourself up. Some people hear this and they think, man, this sounds weak. It doesn't sound very manly at all. To be a servant, to be humble, you're right. It doesn't sound manly at all to the world. To the world, this is the opposite of being manly. That's what Jesus does. Because Jesus Christ has overcome the world and the world's way of thinking. We studied this in the Sermon on the Mount. We called it right side up for a reason. Because we just saw constantly all these things. It's like, you've heard this. I say this. You look at it this way. I'm telling you it's this way. You want to love your friends and hate your enemies. I'm telling you, love your enemies. It was just over and over and over. So if the world has an idea of what it means to be a man, I can tell you almost certainly that Christ's idea is going to be something that looks like the opposite of it. If the world says, lift yourself up, puff yourself up, be in charge, Lord authority, then Jesus is going to say, no, lower yourself down, wash feet. Serve, love, encourage, lift others up, forgive, all these things. Jesus turns the world upside down, and he expects us to live his way on his path. You have to decide who you want to have the right image for. This is a decision you have to make, and this is important for every man in this room and every man who's listening online. You have to decide 
who you want to have the right image for. You can be manly and chase higher rungs on the ladder in the world. And have the world go, that's a manly guy. Or you can look like a real man to God. You got to decide. You can look for appreciation and power and glory and status, or you can serve God faithfully in humility and let him lift you up. We are his disciples. We are his servants. This is what he says. Listen, Luke 17, 7 through 10. And which of you having a servant, right? We're his servants. Which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come home, come in from the field, come at once, sit down to eat. Will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper, supper and gird yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. We're servants. If you feel like you've really been killing it for the Lord, you might be having the wrong attitude. How about everything we have, everything we've been given, every opportunity we have, and the power of the Holy Spirit to do it all comes from him. And so the best that we can do is to simply do what he's called us to do. And very few of us are even making that happen. I know I'm not. One day at a time, he sanctified me. But we're working on it, right? And so when we're done and we've done our thing that we're supposed to do, we come and say, Lord, we are just unprofitable servants. That's us. And I hope with all my heart to be able to say those words to Jesus Christ when I see him face to face. To just be able to say, I'm just an unprofitable servant. I hope that I did some of the things that you had called me to do. I look forward to the day when God humbles me enough so that I can see my work as it is in truth. His gifts, the power of his Holy Spirit working in me through those gifts that I could do something for him. And here's the beautiful thing. When that day comes and I say that to God, I'm just an unprofitable servant. He's going to say back to me the words that I have been longing to hear since I was just starting to seriously follow Christ. Matthew 25, 21. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Where, where are we putting our value? What is it that you want to hear? You the man from the world, or well done, good and faithful servant from Jesus our Lord. Because the way you live is going to determine that. There are those who will not have much in the way of rewards because they were looking for what they could get from the world. And there are those who the world will look at and be like, he wasn't much, he didn't do much, who the Lord is going to say, well done and faithful servant. Those, the economy of heaven is not the economy of the world. There will be people who you have never heard of who will be rulers over cities because they were faithful and they were humble and they were effective at allowing the Holy Spirit to work through them and their gifts and they didn't make a big deal about it and they encouraged others. I want God to see me as a man according to his commands, not as a man according to the world. I don't care if the world sees me as a man according to its perversion. 
What difference does that make to me? I'm Christ's. Jesus is Lord. He's my king. I want to be your servant. I want to be your slave. Because Jesus Christ, our Lord, told me to love you like he loves you. That's what he told me. What he's telling you. Every man who is a part of Acts Church should have that mindset towards every other person in this church. We want to be, we want to outdo each other in acts of service. Not as a competition, so we are like, okay, I can compete at that then. No, no, that's not what I mean. When I face Jesus Christ, our Lord, after being a pastor and an elder in his body, in his church, there had better be women and men and children, all who are his children, all Christ followers who I have been a part of their life, who can say that they were served and honored and encouraged and lifted up and loved. If there's no such testimony, I failed to honor God. If they say, well, he made a lot of himself. He thought he was pretty cool stuff. That's not the testimony that's going to do well for me. They say, yeah, he loved me. I know he did. That's the testimony that I want. See, here's the deal, men. If you're not a servant, you're a punter. Now, my wife and I love British literature. I'm going to explain to you what a punter is in a second. We love British literature. We like British television. We're just, we're just into that kind of thing. We just like it. The British do some pretty good stuff. And one use of the word punter, there are several uses of the word punter. Punter in Britain is a buyer, a shopper, okay? a purchaser, a consumer. If you are not a servant of people, you are a punter of people, a buyer, a consumer, a user. The last thing any Christ follower should be is a punter. And man, this starts with us. Apparently, we have to be specifically warned, especially as husbands, as you saw earlier, to love. Now, here's the thing. You can't love someone, not with that kind of 1 Corinthians 13 type of love. So if you get a chance to read that, you want to know what love looks like, read 1 Corinthians 13. You can't love with that kind of love and be a punter. There's no way to read about God's love for us in Christ and describe him as a user. He doesn't use us. He serves us. He loves us. He gives us everything. His own son, his life. I mean, imagine it. He came and became a human being. Why would he do it? He's God for you. There's nothing consuming you, purchasing in that way. The only thing he purchased was our souls and our salvation with his blood. We're looking sometimes to use people for ourselves. Punter is only looking for what he can get out of someone. He may give something, a little something, but only to get something. To show affection and kindness to his wife or his friends or his boss or whoever, as long as they're giving him what he wants. But when they offend him, where he starts to see them as less valuable or whatever, he goes on to the next purchase. That's how simple it is. And we treat people like this too often. There's too much of this in our lives. For men, the most obvious example, like the, like the extreme end example, is a sexual example. It's pornography. The ultimate punter is the porn addict. He literally consumes the image and images of the bodies of women so that he can gratify himself. It's the ultimate, like, using, right? In that moment, that person cares nothing for the fact that they're people made in the image and likeness of God, cares nothing that they are valuable and important. In that moment, he doesn't care that they're someone's sister 
mother, daughter, possibly someone's wife, he only cares about his own lust. It's the ultimate, like, using somebody else. Sexual sin is one of those places where we consume people. It's just one example, though. There's lots of others. If you lie to your wife, your friend, your boss, you're using them. You're a punter. You're treating them like they're less valuable than you and don't deserve the truth. You're dishonoring them and you're dishonoring God who made them in his image and likeness. And then have integrity. Have real integrity. People are tired of you lying to them. They're tired of it. When you're lazy or apathetic or undependable, you're using people. You're a punter. Can't be dependent on. Won't, won't step up to do what needs to be done. Enough with the video games and the laziness. Put some time into serving other people. This is what we're called to do. I didn't say it was easy. I've never said it was easy. Christ is constantly calling us to stuff. People are like, what? Eat your flesh, drink your blood, what? You know, love my enemies, what? Carry my cross. People are leaving, right? It was like, where's the free bread? That was the good stuff. Can you give us more of the free bread? And he's like, no, I'll tell you what. I don't have a place to lay my head, but if you want to follow me, it looks like this. And in this case, it looks like service, humility, love. For those of you who are married, start loving your wife and your family in such a way that they can see a change, that you're more like Christ to them, who gave himself up for the church. If you're not married, just start loving the people in your life and serving the people in your life and humbling yourself to the people in your life. Stop trying to look better than other people. Stop trying to put yourself above other people. Think about how you can lift them up. Don't envy when you hear something good happen for your body, don't start thinking about how that affects you or how that makes you feel bad that you haven't done that thing. Instead, praise that person, encourage that person, serve that person. Let God lift you up. Don't worry about it. Your value isn't in that. Your value is not in what you do or where you stand on any ladder. That's nonsense. That's a satanic thing. He's the one who wanted to be on the ladder. That's not for you, Christ follower. Instead, be humble and serve in Christ will work in your life and God will lift you up. That's who you need to be and your image needs to be in it. Ephesians 2.10, for we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's it. Hard to do, but simple to understand. This is what leadership is all about. You're supposed to be leading your families, loving and serving your families. That's what I mean when I say leading, not lording authority, not acting like you're better than or you deserve more than serving. Don't be like the Gentiles. You start with humility and love, you're not going to be a punter. And there will be no punters here at Acts Church. It's the end of the age. You want to see more and more people get baptized? You want to see more and more people get discipled, come to Christ and know him? You want to do that? We better start living like he's called us to be. And men, it starts with you. It starts with you. Don't be thinking about what you deserve. Start thinking about what you can give. Don't be thinking about who you can use. Start thinking about how you can be used. How you can pour yourself out. You want to be a real man? Serve the Lord and serve those he made in his image and likeness. Let's pray. Father... Thank you for the men in this church. I thank you that so many of them are here with a soft heart 
and truly want to do what you've called them to do. Lord, I pray you take away the ideas that we've had, that we've built up from society about what masculinity and manliness means. I pray you would just take those away from us. Lord, help us to stop worrying about what other people think and whether we make it according to the world and help us to start thinking about what it looks like to look like you to the world because you are beautiful. You are Lord. You have drawn us to want to serve you because of your beauty and the beauty of your sacrifice for us. Lord, let us, like you, sacrifice ourselves, which is our reasonable service after what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that the men in this church would lead by understanding who they are in the image and likeness of you, by understanding that their identity is in you and that it is in you that we want to be seen as a man, not as in the world and the way they see it. Help us to love, help us to encourage, help us to lift others up and not lift ourselves up, Lord, that you might lift us up and that each man in this church may be able to come before you and say, I'm just an unprofitable servant. And that you might be able to say to each one of us, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus, we look forward to that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We love you. In your name, amen.